0: Take your Bible, if you will, your copy of the Word of God, and go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Uh, You know, this month of November, it has brought some chilling temperatures our way. And as we move closer to winter, into the Christmas season, uh, it's probably going to get a little colder. But that's all right. The sun is shining. But like Tyler said, we can praise the Lord when it's when it's foggy outside, when it's raining, when it's snowing. And I think some people would praise more when it's snowing. uh, My wife being included in that. Uh, But we can praise the Lord all the time because the sun shines in our hearts all the time. And personally, I just want to let you know that Christmas is one of my favorite times of the year, if not the favorite time of the year, maybe not the weather part. The weather, I'd probably choose Easter, Uh, but uh, I do like the snow as well. It it puts a smile on my wife's face, Um, but uh, it is one of my favorite times. It seems like the whole world for a moment seems to pause, at least the Western world, the Christian world, seems to pause and celebrate the birth of Christ. Uh, And I realize that most of Christmas is unfortunately commercialized these days, but I still enjoy hearing songs about Christ. Uh, And you can hear them outside the church Uh, compared to what you'd normally hear when you say walk through Ikea or something like that. You hear now you can walk through here and hear Christmas songs, songs about God becoming man, even in Ikea. You know, it just puts a smile on my face when I walk into the Bauhaus, for example, and I hear over the loudspeakers joy to the world. In English, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. I wonder if the person who's putting that together is even a believer. Or he just, ah, oh, it's Christmas music, just put it on there. Like Paul, I think we can praise the Lord. that even, even though Christ is preached in contention or Christ is preached by a mistake, we can take joy in the fact that He is preached. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. You know, the celebration of Christmas is more than 2,000 years old. And it still provides an opportunity to those who truly know Christ, you and me to share our faith. it gives you a little window that is not normally present during the rest of the year it 's an opportunity to be a little bit more bold. you can say why why are you so happy during this christmas season? Why do you decorate why do you why do you have a manger scene? Why do you do all these things? Well, it gives you an opportunity to to share the gospel it gives you an opportunity to share the Lord Jesus Christ as your wonderful redeemer your yours and mine and as we approach the the end of November again into the Christmas season, we also approach the end of our study here in First John. I hope it's been a blessing to you. Uh, I truly hope the study and, and all the sermons brought us all as a church a little closer to God. Uh, I pray that he've met, He has met with you during your personal devotions as you open up the Word of God, whether it's in the morning or evening, and you turn to First John, and, and maybe God has brought something to your attention, maybe during the sermon, or maybe even during your own uh, personal walk and personal study. That your faith has been deepened over the fact that God became flesh. God loves this world. Uh, He's not willing to any should perish. And John just highlights a lot of those things here uh, in this first epistle. In fact, 1 John can easily be a a source text for the entire Christmas season. It has a strong emphasis on God becoming flesh. Uh, It begins uh, right there in in verse number one with the word of life who became flesh. And it concludes with the true God as Him being the eternal life. Jesus as the true God in the flesh. You know, whether it's in His letters or in His gospel record, it's kind of interesting that John, the Apostle John, doesn't focus much on the actual birth of Christ. Uh, He puts a whole lot more emphasis on the theological truth of Christ... And our spiritual need, our need completely for Him. And in this last sermon of John, as we, as we go through 1 John, I wanted to... On one hand, I wanted to do a survey of all of it and just put it all together. But the Lord didn't give me really peace about that. But I, I want to look at some theological truths and how they apply to God's children. In fact, I've entitled today's message, uh, Truth for God's Children. Truth for God's children. I want you to pay attention to 1 John chapter 4. And uh, I pray that you're with me this morning. But look at verse number 11. It's a lengthy read this morning, but just please bear with me. It's, it is the word of God. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He hath given us His Spirit. And we have seen, and do testify the Father that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us, God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, as he is, not past tense, but present tense, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because feareth torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And every one that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. And keep his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is a spirit that beareth witness because the spirit is truth. Verse 7 says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three are agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. Verse 10 says, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And these things have I written unto you, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, this morning, Lord, we love you. Lord, we're thankful so much, Lord, that we have a a living God. We have a living God who became a living man, who robed himself in flesh for our sin, and because he loved us, Lord. Lord, we have an almighty God that's meeting with us this morning, that you are in our hearts this morning. You are in our midst this morning. This is your church. This is your gathering, your collection of saints, Lord. Lord, and we are here to worship, Lord. Here are we to worship you, Lord. We want to be revived by the word you have for us this morning. We want to be rekindled this morning. We want to show our love and live in a way that brings you honor and glory beginning this very moment, Lord. Lord, send us a stirring this morning. Stir our hearts right now, this very moment, Lord. Lord, in a way that we know for sure that you're meeting with us at this very moment. Lord, we know that we can't get this moment back. We want to live it for you. We want to give it all to you. We want to surrender every aspect of our life, our thoughts from yesterday, our plans for tomorrow, all that we are, every ambition that I have, Lord, I throw it at the cross, at the foot for you. To have and to enjoy and to endure and to do whatever you want with me, Lord. Here am I. Here are we. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for becoming flesh, Lord. We thank you for the book this morning. And we thank you for loving us. And we know that we can only love you because you first loved us. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Truth for God's children. I want you to look again at verse number 18 of chapter 4. The Bible says, there is no fear in love. I love that passage. There there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Perfect love removes fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in life. The first theological truth I want to talk to you this morning about is a perfect love. A perfect love, you know. In this short epistle of only five chapters, John uses the variation of love some fifty times, just shy fifty, I think forty-seven times. Love or lovest or or something like that. Loved fifty times, and with many different perspectives. Uh, some on their eternality of it. Some on the greatness. Of behold what manner. But here he has an emphasis on the perfection of that love. Look at verse eighteen again. He says there is no fear in love, but perfect love. Cast out fear. Perfect love. Cast out fear. That word for perfect here is a reference to completion. It's not a reference to sinless, although it's God. So it's it's a a perfect love from God is going to be sinless. Uh, But a perfect love, a complete love is one that cast out fear. And here is the interesting part. It is it is. Unequivocally, also are only from God, but it can be from us. It's always from God, and it can be from us. The more we are transformed into the image of His Son. Remember, God's love is an agape love, an agape love, an agape love is a non-reciprocal love. In other words, if I love you with an agape love, I'm not expecting you to love me back. It's not a requirement for me to love you. I love you. End of story. Period. However you want to look at that. That's God's love for us. It's not based on anything that we do. It's not even based on whether or not we accept His Son. God loves us. Now, there is an expectation that we would appreciate that love and accept His Son. But God loves us nevertheless. God desires greatly for us to respond to His love, but He loves us regardless. Remember Romans 5.8. God loves us while we were yet sinners. Right? God loves us when we're sinners. Do we love God when we're sinners? We have no idea what it means to love God when we are sinners, when we are without Christ. But He loves us and He died for us. And verse 19 of the same passage says we love Him because He first loved us. We can only love God because He first loved us. So while it's true that perfect love, no doubt, begins with God and His love for us, I want to first kind of switch that around and look at how we can love Him. How we love Him. And then we'll look at how God loves us. Uh, last week we highlighted 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. It says, For this is love, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous. His commandments are not grievous to those who love Him. Remember we talked about how Christians, if we are followers of Christ, if we say we love Christ, we should love following Christ. It, it should be an automatic conclusion. It's strange that it's not. Right? It's strange in, our, in all, every one of our lives. We say that we love Christ. We say that we're Christian, but it is a strange conclusion that we don't love following God. Now, hopefully, as we grow in Christ, we can get to the point where we love following him. Well, I love my wife. I love doing things for my wife. Is it rooted in the things that I do for her? Absolutely not. It's rooted in my love for her. I love her. So I do things for her. I love God. So I live for God. You know, there are many true stories Uh, of men rising to an occasion in the face of fear, in the face of danger for the love of God, for the love of country, and even for the love of a loved one or a spouse. There are many, many things in the Old Testament, even in in the church age, like people like Polycarp, who were burned at the stake, people like John Huss, just, just an hour and a half away or two hours away over there in Czech, who was burned at the stake by his own Bibles. His love was greater than his fear of death. There's many stories one story by the, by the Bible commentary, uh, commentator by the name of John Phillips, he tells a story of a man named Thomas Cranmer. Uh, maybe some of y'all have heard of him. He was the Archbishop of England under Henry VIII. Henry VIII was an interesting fellow. Uh, if you study that out, it was also during uh, the reign of Mary. She was trying to get to the throne. And you know a little bit about her. But during uh, Archbishop uh, Thomas Cranmer's service to England, he would go back and forth. He would vacillate back and forth in agreement with the papacy. And then he would go back and forth with agreement to the Church of England. Remember, the Church of England is kind of like they want to be Catholic, but they don't want the pope. Right. So they wanted that's maybe an oversimplified view of it. But the king, King Henry, wanted his own religion there. He wanted his own thing. And he didn't want to be under the yoke of the Catholic pope. Well, Mary was a Catholic and Cranmer is the archbishop. So it kind of puts him in a bind there. And he wrote many things. And sometimes his writings would go with the pope. And then sometimes his writings would go with the king of England. And it wasn't like he would just. You know, be a little bit here. There were bold, contradictory letters of his life. They're written. You can find them in history. They contradict each other. And why did he do this? Because he greatly feared the pope and he also greatly feared the king. And when his charades finally caught up with him, the king threw him in prison to await execution. His life of making choices based on fear was about to come to an end. And even in prison, he was given two letters. They, they, the, the Catholics came to him and they, and they, draw, they drew a letter out and said, you're going to say this. You're going to recant. At, before you're killed, you're going to recant this. And then the Protestants would bring him a letter. This is what you're going to say. And he would go back and forth. Even as he walked to the, to the, uh, to the executionary thing, he, would, he went back and forth. Which am I going to do? Am I going to be Protestant? Am I going to be Catholic? Going to, back and forth. He didn't know what to do. But in the night before... Uh, And many nights probably before that, uh, he was starting to get to the idea about his own witnesses and those in prison with him, those others who were martyred. He's getting to the conclusion why, why am I, why do I have to be tied to the Pope? Why do I have to be tied to the Church of England? Is not Christ a personal savior? And as he approached the executioner on the day that he died, he decided that his love for God was greater than his fear of death. And his personal faith was reduced to a simple trust in God, void of any man-made movement, including the Church of England or the Roman Catholic Church. He said these words moments before he was burned alive at this day. He says, for as much as my hand offended in writing contrary to my own heart, therefore my hand shall be the first to be punished It shall be the first to be burned in the fire. And it's said that his hand, as he was burned at the stake, he held his hand resolutely in the hottest part of the fire until his body perished. It stayed there all the way to the end because he wanted to stand for God. Now, friends, his life of fear very clearly gave way to his love for God. And I hope with every fiber of my being that our lives don't end anything like that. But I wonder if our love for God... Is greater than our fear of men? Is our love for God greater than our fear of men? Is our love for God greater than anything in this world? Is our love for God greater than our fear of others? Is our love for God greater than our fear of being executed? Is it greater than a fear of a bad career? Is it greater than a bad conversation with my spouse or with my wife or with that's the same thing, I guess. But with, with anything, is it greater than uh, a conversation with my mother-in-law? Is it greater? Than, do I fear God more? Do I love God more than I fear that conversation? Is my love for God greater than being excluded in the workplace? Is it greater than being excluded in the school place? Is our love for Him greater? You know, the litmus test that answers this question is quite simple. The Bible says this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments... And his commandments are not grievous. So get this now. Very simple. If we don't keep his commandments for fear of being excluded or any other thing, then the love that we have is lacking right out of the Bible. If the love, if if our fear of anything else keeps us from living out our life, then our love for God is lacking because he that feareth is not made perfect in love. If we are not living a life that is honorable before God because we feel it's too much. It's just too much to live for God. It's just, you know, people might think I'm weird. People might associate me with that preacher down in Hermannsdorf. People might think I'm too religious. They might drink, I drank too much of the Kool-Aid. I'm too old-fashioned. Well, first of all, that is fear. And second of all, our love for Him needs some work, if that's our conclusion. If we cannot overcome a raised eyebrow in the workplace or a slight disapproving gesture from a skeptical colleague, how are we ever gonna live a righteous life? How are we gonna live a victorious life before God? Our love for God must be greater than our fear of man. That is a perfect love. That's a perfect love. Do we have a perfect love? And as I mentioned earlier, it begins with God. So while John puts a strong emphasis from John, or there's a strong emphasis from John for us to love God And others with that complete love, that perfect love, this perfect love exists first and foremost with God. Right? we, We know that. It's not a surprise for us. And God's perfect love, what does it do? It casts out fear. Just like Cranmer's love, he came to the point where my love for God is greater than anything I'm going to face, so I will stand and I will repent all those things that are contrary to the Word of God, and I will stand. Well, God's love also casts out fear, even greater than our love for Him. Because when we realize and recognize how great and perfect God's love truly is, fear has no factor in our life. It has no factor. You can actually take it down. When we're starting to fear, you can check the block where's my love? Where is my love for God? God's perfect love casts out fear. His love for us. Is not the weak part. It's our recognition of it. It has the ability to remove fear. Think of it this way. I know that my wife loves me. uh, And her words and her actions have have conveyed that and proven that time and time again. And she is certainly not perfect. Don't tell her I said that. But her love is her love also is not perfect. But God's love for me is perfect. But when it comes to my wife, I have no fear of infidelity Because of her love for me. Does that make sense? I have no fear of her love because to me her love is a perfect love and it cast out all fear of infidelity and many other things. And again, God's love for me is greater. And how do we know that God loves us? The Bible tells me so. Remember those little songs we sang when we were children? His love removes my fear of being forsaken. I am not afraid as I stand before you this morning, I am not afraid to give my whole life to Jesus Christ because he will not forsake me because I know that he loves me and his perfect love cast out any fear that I have that I live in my life for naught. All that fear is gone. Yes, I fall and I falter, I come to a point, but when I'm right and you know you're right, you get to that point when you know you're trusting all that you have in God and you know that fear cast or that love cast out any fear that you might have. There is fear. I mean, think of the mission, missionaries that are before they get to the mission field or even as they're new on the mission field, they get here. What drives them there? Love drives them there. A love for God and a love for their fellow man. And that love trumps any fear there is of whatever I may face. How do people like like Elliot's go to wherever they went and give their whole life and then their loved ones go right back to the same place, the spouse of, you know, of one and still go on? How do they go across, How do they face such, such fear and such danger? Perfect love cast out fear. Perfect love cast out fear. Again, how is your love this morning? Do you really love God? Do we really love God? Do we have a perfect love for God? It changes everything. It really does. It revolutionizes everything. It, it, it colors everything in your life. Everything. And if it doesn't we have to check ourselves and see where our love is at. It's nothing boring about God. Nothing at all. We want to love Him. And that perfect love cast out all those things. But there is an ingredient here I want to I highlight. An, an ingredient here in this equation that we haven't mentioned this morning yet. Because knowing that God loves us is, of course, an important thing to know. But possessing and recognizing that type of love... Possessing and recognizing a type of love from God that removes faith, or removes fear, requires faith. It runs on the rails of faith. And if we are to overcome anything in this world, it's by grace through faith. Look at verse 4 of chapter 5. It says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our Faith. In order to experience the perfect love of God, we must first possess a powerful faith. A powerful faith. Now, truthfully, even a faith the size of a mustard seed, as our Savior says, can open the door of love that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. But I would say in comparison to the way we normally live, a mustard seed is is a powerful faith. A mustard seed can move mountains. That's powerful. That is a powerful faith. And during the ups and downs of our lives, there are many things that we're going to face that we're going to need to tap into that powerful faith, that powerful faith to overcome these things. The- There are so many cheap fixes in this world, so many remedies, even when it comes to God. You ever read those books, Seven Ways to Walk True with God, or or this and all these trickies? This is the way we walk with God. We read this book. We dedicate our lives to this. Don't fall for those remedies and get-rich schemes that this world promises, and, and victory and all those things. There is only one way for us to overcome this world. One way. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. When we can overcome the world, why do we stoop to anything else? And this overcoming is not some military overthrow of the world's governments. Not by us anyway. But the over, although every knee will bow when Christ reigns. But this is, over, this is us overcoming all that is in this present world. Look at chapter 2 verse 16. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Actually, look at 15. It says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. This is us overcoming the world. Through faith, we can have the victory over each and every one of these things, over the lust of the flesh, over the, the lust of the eyes, and over the pride of life. It happens by faith. It's been said before in this world, you've probably heard it once or twice in maybe different variations, but this world's tough, and nobody gets out of life. I'm sure you've heard that, and that's true in a certain sense, I guess, but God has promised victory to us through faith, victory. To us through faith, Jesus told the apostles in John sixteen thirty three. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In me you're going to have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Listen, folks, this is the Savior. This is Jesus speaking to the apostles and to us. He says, "Be of good cheer." I think maybe we've, we, we forget that part. Be of good cheer. Oh, the Lord's coming back. He says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's our Savior. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the same Jesus who says, come unto me. Come unto me. This is the God who became flesh. The God who became our sin. The God who suffered our death. The God who invites whosoever will. The same God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has overcome the world. And we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. What is more than a conqueror? A victor. We have victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how many detours we take in this life, how many mistakes we make. It doesn't matter who the president even is. It doesn't matter what the media says. It doesn't matter what any book or magazine. It doesn't matter any of those things. The future of the church is as bright as the tomb is empty. We have a bright future, and it always will be a bright future. Have faith in God today. Have a powerful faith in God. When you can't see His hand, trust His heart. Trust God. He will never lead you in error. You know, don't, I think too many Christians, myself included, we sell our faith short so many times. Don't do that. Because faith is the victory. Because get this all put together now. Yes, God became flesh. Yes, He was crucified. Yes, He paid our sin debt. And yes, there is victory in Jesus. But we will never experience that victory without faith. You will never overcome the lust of this world without faith. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith, John says. And remember, this is a truth for God's children. This is not just for the world. It is for God's people. We can't just trust Jesus Christ for salvation and ignore him in every other aspect of our lives. It doesn't work that way. One would beg the question, did we trust him for salvation? Get this now. The shield of faith works in conjunction with the helmet of salvation. It's all one kit of the same of the same uh, armament. It's all together. One doesn't cancel out the other. Live by faith. Make it a point to trust God. Put yourself in a position where you have to trust God. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not tempting God. There is a a place where we can tempt God. But make make yourself have faith in God on purpose. Make it a point to trust Him with what you cannot see. We can't see tomorrow anyway. Trust Him. Plan. Do the best you can. Trust God. Live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Notice that in Habakkuk 2.4. You don't have to turn there, but it doesn't say the just should live by faith. It says the just live by faith. We are the just because of Jesus Christ. We don't live by faith because we desire to live by. It's, it's actually turned around, if you will. If we're living by faith, there's a good evidence that we are the just. We are. We are believers. And then notice again, first John, chapter five. Look down at verse number verse number five. So we have a perfect love. We have a a powerful faith. And verse number five says, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. We have a personal witness from God, a personal witness Get this Now, God didn't just send a message of hope to the world. He didn't just send the gospel message. He didn't just say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He was the message. He was the message and the messenger. It was a personal message. And if we see in this passage here in verse number 7, every person of the triune God had a part in our salvation. Every person, all of God, had a part in our salvation. Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost... We cannot say that we have some God on some a distant galaxy somewhere with no desire to know man. The complete Trinity bears record to the contrary. All of God, He wants us to be saved. He gives us a record. He bears record of Jesus Christ. And what is that record? Look at verse 11 again. He says, this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. God's a personal witness of Himself. He is a personal witness of Himself. Notice also that the Trinity's record always points to one person of the Trinity, to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, who inspired John, states that He came by water and by blood. And we don't want to get into too much detail here, but water could easily be a reference to Jesus Christ as God in the flesh with a focus on his birth and his baptism, and the blood is easily a reference to the cross, and the Spirit bears, the Spirit, the Spirit bears witness, and the Spirit is truth. You know, when, when a baby is in the womb, uh, and we know something spectacular happened with the birth of Christ, there's no blood from Joseph in there, right? Um, but if you really look at the growth of a child in the womb, you know it doesn't have the, the blood of the mother. It produces... The child produces his or her own blood. That's why a mother can have a different type blood type than a child. Right? It can have, and, and there's even cases where the blood type of the mother would kill the child if they were to mix and vice versa. It makes its own blood. The child makes its own blood. Now, think of that. Think of all the different blood types in the world today A positive, A negative. I'm A negative. Anybody else A negative? A positive. All those things like that. But think of this what type of blood did Jesus have? It did not come from Mary. It did not come from Joseph. It came from God. A precious blood. Maybe we can call it P plus, you know, a new a new type of blood. And there's only one type of blood, his divine blood that was shed for for you and me. That blood is clearly a reference to the cross. Blood shed for you and me, for the sins of the whole world. And the spirit bears witness of that. You know, one of the truths, one of the truths here. I believe that John is trying to convey is that Jesus Christ as the son of God was and is a personal witness of our need for eternal life. He is a personal witness of our need for eternal life. Again, God didn't just send a message of hope to the world. He was that message. He was a personal witness and he was validated many, many times. He's validated by the Father. He's validated by the Spirit. He's validated by the Word. He was validated at His birth, at His baptism, at the transfiguration, at the empty tomb, at the ascension. He is also validated in Scripture and even in my life and in your life. And speaking of God's Word, this is, in fact... God's Word. I mean, we believe this, right? This is the Word of God. Do we really believe that? You know, there's no other collections of writings that compares to the Bible. Not even close. It is the foundation of our belief. We've not seen Christ in the flesh. We've not seen His pierced hands or the, or the pierced in His siding. We've based all of our faith off the Word of God. Yes, somebody might have led us to Christ. That's usually how it goes, but it's based off the authority of this book. And this book bears the witness of Jesus Christ. I know there are a lot of naysayers in this world. I know there's a lot of scoffers in this world. The Bible predicts them. But the witness of man changes. How many of y'all would say something today that you would never say 20 years ago? Probably all of us. Probably we have a conviction today that we, that compared to our 20 year, 20 year ago self, that conviction would almost be a black and white difference. Right. Maybe, maybe 30 years ago, 40 years ago. (laughs) But we our My point is our testimony changes. Our testimony very clearly who I was 30 years ago is not the person you see before you today. My testimony changes my witness of who I am and who he is truly changes But God doesn't change. He doesn't change. And it doesn't take much to see that we change and He does not change. Look at verse 9. It says, If we receive the witness of men, that includes you and me, that includes this preacher up here, the witness of God is greater. The witness of God is greater. And that witness points to the Lord Jesus Christ. It points to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if you do not believe that you need Christ... If you ignore the witness that God gives you, if we do not accept accept Christ as our Savior, we are essentially saying that our witness is greater than His witness. That we are greater than God. That He is a liar, And which is John's stronger language here. We are calling God a liar. Let's put it this way. God is perfect and without sin, and we are not. Because of sin, we are destined for hell. Remember Romans 6.23? For the wages of sin is, is death. By one man, Romans 5, 12, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. I think as Christians, we kind of forget that sometimes. Not, not from the world. We're quick to say the world's under sin. But sometimes we get to the point where, I've been a Christian for a while. I've been a sinner. We're sinners. We need God every single day. And the truth of the matter is that God loves us dearly. He loves the lost, and He loves us. Look at First John chapter 4. Verse number 10. The Bible says, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The testimony of John, the testimony of the word, the testimony of God, the father, the testimony of God, the son, the testimony of God, the spirit and the crux of the entire New Testament is found in verse 14 of chapter four. We have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That is the most important thing for us to get a hold of. He is a personal witness. A personal witness. Verse 24 of chapter 3 says, Hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. Do you have the Son? Do you have the Son? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Listen, there are many people that sit just like this around the world who say they're believers, who walk the walk and talk the talk, but have no idea what it means to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can pretend that God isn't real or that we have no sin or don't need a savior. And we can smile and even convince ourselves that I've went off the deep end, maybe. But if you you know, if you take an honest look at yourself, you will know that there is a void in you. There is a void in you. Don't let embarrassment stop you. Don't let ridicule and all those other things stop you from knowing for sure you have eternal life. God loves each of us enough, not just to send a personal message of salvation, but to send his son to the cross. You will not find greater love than that. Not by water only, he says, but by water and blood. Do you have the son? Do you have the son? It's the difference between eternal life and eternal death do you have the son? And then lastly I want you to look at chapter five verse 12, as we kind of come to a close here this morning. The Bible says, "He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of." of the son of god we have a present life we have a present life verse 12 if you noticed it's written in the present tense if you have the son you have life if you have the son you have eternal life now it's that simple it is a present possession you know think of it this way if salvation was not eternal and it was based and it was not based on the works of christ And it was based on how well we live. Do you think verse 13 would be a little different? Would it be written a little different? Maybe maybe it would read like this. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have conditional life. What sense does that make? It doesn't make any sense. Or that you know that you have temporary life or that, you know, you have a life as long as you keep on doing what's right. I mean, think about it. If we could lose our salvation at the moment of every sin, first of all, we could never keep it because all sin separates us from God. And second, a salvation, a salvation that is based on how well we keep his commandments is not a salvation. It's works. It's works. Ephesians 2.89 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and then not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast, not of works. Listen, God does not make us a divine partaker of his glory, as Peter talks about, resulting in eternal life, just so we can take it back. This is not the God we serve. He that hath the Son hath life. And these things were written that ye may know that you have eternal life, that you may know. Eternal life is a present life. <coughs> And it's based on the authority of God's word. And we can know that we have it. That's wonderful. We can know that we have eternal life. And this truth for God's children this morning, this knowledge should bring comfort to every one of his children. That should bring great comfort. That's that's make an immortal soldier going on the battlefield. We have eternal life. We are free because of Jesus Christ. We are free. Because of Jesus Christ, we are free. He he alone is the definition of perfect love. So I'm going to go down. Look at this list here now. He is the definition of perfect love. He is the author and finisher of, of our faith. He is a personal witness who not only sent a message, but was the message. And he is the divine giver of a present and eternal life. Tell me. What more could God do for us? What more could God do for us? What more does he have to do to get your attention this morning? What more is required of God other than him becoming flesh, becoming sin, becoming our payment and becoming the door to eternal life and many other things? What more does he have to do? How much will it take for us to give and live a little bit more for our creator, for our redeemer? the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray.